So this is a momentous, momentous evening. This is the first evening that I've been able to, in the five or more years that we've been here, and maybe in the 28 years that I've uh, led a group in the neighborhood, first time that I've used a lapel mic. <laughs> so we shall see whether it's uh, effective or not. Can you hear me okay? Great. Well, I've just uh, come recently from leading a retreat at Spirit Rock from uh, last Tuesday until Sunday, and and once again I was uh, very inspired by the effects of, of continuity of practice, of creating the conditions where there is some degree of safety, and the commitment, a sincere effort, a commitment and sincere effort to place one's attention and heart uh, with the reality of the present moment and not to be so busy looking for relief elsewhere. And even though I've done this for so many years now, each time I am quite amazed by the, the, the uh, dawning of a kind of light in the, in the hearts and minds of uh, anyone who, who, as we sometimes joke, anyone who puts their tush on the cush, anyone who just stops. And, and when I say stop, I don't mean uh, physically stops. There is some stillness, but it's really the stopping of the tendency to look elsewhere that allows a, a, a deep reconnecting with the, what I like to call the inexhaustible resource of, of presence, of, of now. As one of my favorite teachers, Srinas or Gadatta, put it, reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are mental. And we tend to spend a lot of our time in the imagined past and future. We spend a lot of our time in a reality that does not even exist. Because we know there is no past. It is, it is only knowable in the vitality of the present moment as a thought. And there's no future. The only way we know a future is an idea called uh, planning, fantasizing, worrying, uh, fearfulness. This is the only way we know f- the future is by the feelings and thoughts that are happening in the present moment. And the, the more we dwell in this world of imagination, the more we lose uh, contact with this vivid and uh, vital reality of, of the present. And consequently, when people come to a retreat, they come uh, very contracted, very diminished, very worn out by, by being engaged in the, um, in the uh, futile, effort uh, to find relief in, uh, in planning and in fantasizing. The study that many of you have probably heard about, the study from Harvard on uh, the, the extent to which people spend their time uh, lost in thought or daydreaming, is something to the effect of uh, 46.9% of the time. And that 46.9% of the time is is spent with, the, with an innocent, sincere effort to make living 
in a world that has, uh, has lots of challenges, lots of stress, it's an attempt to make our, the work that we're doing or just our life in general more easy to bear. But what was striking about the study was that to a person, rather than all of that fantasizing and planning and remembering all of the daydreaming, rather than it bringing relief and making our tasks more easy to bear, when, we would, when the people would wake up out of whatever they were daydreaming about, the task always became more difficult instead of easier. And that difficulty shows as the, as the uh, contraction in the heart and a heaviness and a feeling of, of just the, a loss of that, uh, that effulgence of, of being really immersed in one's life. It's just you get lost. And it, then it start, you start to believe that, that happiness is uh, not something that you can even find here. And all of this is uh, because we, most of our thoughts lead us into, into some kind of uh, addictive pattern. Either it's often in, in search of, of something that will give us pleasure, that will um, make us happy. And unfortunately, as I think maybe even Arena spoke of last week, the attachment to the pleasures of the senses that our mind fantasizes about and that we end up searching for, it does give us a little occasional respite from whatever might be difficult. But it, uh, whatever that respite is, it, it, it leaves us, it may give us a respite, it doesn't give us any freedom. It makes us dependent on these little momentary hits of pleasure for our relief. And each time we experience some kind of pleasure without understanding. If we don't meet it with that understanding that whatever joy we experience is fleeting, as that great poem from Blake, William Blake, says, and I'll do it in the feminine because for some reason it sounds better to me that way, she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity, sunrise. But we don't tend to kiss the joy as it flies. We tend to cling to the joyful moments. We experience them. They pass. They leave a little feeling of emptiness, a feeling of loss. And that hole that gets opened up is often quickly filled with another, uh, another desire until our mind is in a constant flywheel of what the Buddha called bhava, or becoming, toppling forward into that, uh, that next moment, and unable to actually inhabit and, and be in the one we're in. And then in that process, of course, we forget that, uh, that our own nature, our own heart, is what all of us are so longing to connect with, um, that we are, each of us is what or who we're looking for. Um, this is what, uh, while I'm on this topic, this is what Sogyal Rinpoche describes as our, as our cultural habit, but I think this is pretty much human nature. 
He says, sometimes I think the greatest achievement of our modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Just let me back up a little bit. Samsara, for those of you who don't know this word, it's the word in Sanskrit, Pali, that means uh, the cycle of existence, cycle of, of um, birth and death. But this cycle of birth and death can be understood as the cycle we go through moment to moment. Getting, having, you know, wanting, having, getting, losing, and then the cycle of, of generating another until our mind is in a kind of state of ceaseless, ceaseless um, dissatisfaction. He says, sometimes I think the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage from people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction in and around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it is so ingenious at setting for us. Mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We are like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. That should get your New Year's off to a good start. <laughs> well, I say this, I read this, because that is, the, that is our conditioning. It is not our, it's not our fate. And one of the beautiful teachings of the Buddha is that what, what one frequently dwells upon becomes the inclination of our mind. So if we, if we frequently dwell upon what I want to happen, what I want, and associate, continually dwell upon the association of our well-being with, with uh, something that's not available to me here and now, then I'm actually just falling right into the, these, the ingenious traps that samsara holds out to us to, uh, to partake in. If, on the other hand, I frequently dwell upon, begin to open to the life of the present moment, learn to find rather than 
going out of myself in search. Rather, I settle back and come home. And I see this when I see this in my own practice, I see this in other people's practice. When we make that shift, when we turn our attention the other way, we turn it back to ourselves. We awaken in us this amazing capacity to be awake and aware and use for our wakefulness whatever is happening at our different senses, not what sense experience I can have some other day, but what sense experience I'm having right now. We realize that the miracle is the capacity to experience things directly, immediately. The miracle is not what mountain I will be able to climb or what item I'll be able to purchase. It's in, it's in the nature of the, of the heart and mind of consciousness as it is right now that we, each of us is quite a miracle. But we have to open ourselves to ourselves to see that. So I started this evening by saying, I notice once again that people come because we're all, we all have the same conditioning. All, even our sincere longing to be free and to be happy, we all tend to fall into the same samsaric loop, the same traps. But when there's, a, when there's support, when there is some continuity of mindful attention, of kindness, of sincerity, each person, there's not one person, and I'm not saying everybody, everyone of the 92 people that were on retreat left happy, but they looked beautiful. The light came back into the eyes. The hearts became so tender. And I just was reminded, I tried to remember this poem on the, um, on the retreat, this poem from Hafez called Absolutely Clear, where he says, and it's just another call to just be with yourself intimately. He says, don't let your loneliness... Oh, now I forgot it again. What? Let your... Uh, wait. Let your loneliness... Uh... No, it doesn't start that way. Let your loneliness cut more deeply or something like that. Do not surrender your loneliness too, too quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or divine ingredients can. Then he ends by saying, something missing in my heart, feeling, something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so sweet, my voice so tender, my need of the divine absolutely clear. So even in the midst of feeling the difficulties, they have the effect when we face them of, of turning us into tenderness. Turning us into, turn, it turns into love. and turns into light and wakefulness. And we see this when in, the, in a period of intensive practice, but I've... I have also the good fortune of having worked with people over many years, mentored a lot of people, and see that that light takes root even in daily life if one devotes themselves to hear 
as Wendell Berry puts it, this is a little bit uh, off-season, but I'll read it to you anyway. It's his poem called Wild Geese. It says, Horseback on Sunday morning, Harvest over, we taste persimmon and wild grape, Sharp sweet of summer's end. In time's maze over the fall fields, We name names that went west from here, Names that rest on graves. We open a persimmon seed to find the tree that stands in promise, pale in the seed's marrow. Geese appear high over us, pass and the sky closes. Abandon as in love or sleep holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith. What we need is here. And we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. As Sri Nisargadatta puts it, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe in their absence we must be miserable. And you can substitute things to be different, places, people, whatever it is that you think you need to be happy. As long as we believe we need these things to make us happy, we shall also believe in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have or do things to be happy when in reality, it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. How many of you think that way? After all, the ultimate purpose of sadhana, or practice, is to reach a point when this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual and ever-present experience. The only way that we can have that as actual everyday experience is by putting our attention, anchoring it to the present moment. The same teacher who wrote that, Sri Nisargadatta, says if one uh, keeps one's mind, uh, in a sense, free of the usual preoccupations, and, when I, and I, when I say this, I don't mean suppress what's going on in your mind, it just means direct your attention here to what's actually alive here. He says if you are free of your preoccupations and you're here, your mind, your heart, will become quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and stay in it, you'll discover that it's permeated with a light and a love you've never known, yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. He says you won't stay here because the unruly mind will break the peace of that and obliterate that vision but it's bound to return if the effort is sustained until all bonds are broken, 
grasping and attachment ends and life becomes supremely concentrated uh, in the present. The only place that we can ever live. Everything else is imaginary. So Kabir puts it like this. Don't go outside your house to see the flowers. My friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. That will do for a place to sit. Sitting there, you will have a glimpse of beauty inside the body and out of it, before gardens and after gardens. Like that one. So we all have a, a list, beginning of the new year. The usual list is all of our what we're going to accomplish. I understand I'm speaking to those who probably have on your list to meditate more. <laughs> but the tendency is to is to have to meditate more to realize that we're actually carrying around uh, lists of things that that actually may increase our disease that uh, that we may be be driven by trying to be a, trying to become a better self or be to, to think that if we improve ourselves then we'll be happy now no doubt certain things that you do and say and act those things will bring more happiness in your life but and for knowledge and for experience and for education you need to you need time and you need you need money you need all these things for knowledge and education and to get along with people you need to be able to learn how to communicate and not cause so much harm with your speech but to find your innermost nature to find that that richness you need nothing you only need to stop leaving yourself Otherwise, everything that you go, you go to for relief is laden with anxiety and tension. It ends up being, as Hafiz also says, it ends up being a counterfeit coin. And here's what he says about counterfeit coins. He says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that buy you just a moment of pleasure but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. So part of our reason for practice is to clarify our hearts and minds, to, be, to become self-aware. I realize every time I, I sit, I realize how much my mind is... Uh, and I don't notice it as much in my daily life, how much my mind is looking for the next experience. I, I feel often when I, when I practice, and even when I'm leading a retreat, I, all of a sudden I, I'm, the perfect, I'm the perfect example of what uh, Mullah Nasruddin meant. Mullah Nasruddin was this wise person, uh, trickster, fool, who... By, his, by the way he lived, 
he was constantly giving teachings, and in one of his teachings, he took his students, they kind of followed him to the, to the market, to the food market, and he saw that there was a sale on chili peppers. And he bought a bushel of chili peppers, and he took them back to his, uh, the place of residence, and he sat down at the table, and he started eating the chili peppers one by one. And what happens if you keep eating chili peppers? You get quite hot, and he was perspiring, and water dripping from his forehead, and his students say, what are you doing? What, what, what are you doing? And they kept prodding him to find out why he was eating these chili peppers, and he finally looked up and he answered, I'm looking for a sweet one. <laughs> and this is, of course, this is what we do. Constantly in search for the sweet one, not realizing that we're, we're burning up burning with desire. And so we've fallen into this addictive pattern of of going out. And it's partly the addiction to our thoughts. It's not just the addiction to sense pleasure. It's, it's It's being addicted to and believing the thoughts that we have about ourselves that the central thought about ourselves that seems to be the engine that drives so much of our seeking, which is for a further addiction, the, addi- the addiction to seeking. This, the engine driving thought is the thought that there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with this present moment. And partly that is arises innocently because we're, we somehow have gotten into the idea that there should be no unpleasant moments. This is why the Buddha focused the first of his noble truths when he turned the wheel of the Dharma. He focused on and encouraged everyone to face the truth that this life, if you are born, has stress it has things that are hard to bear. So the word that's used is dukkha. Sometimes translated as suffering, but he didn't say all life is suffering. He said life has, has dukkha, it has suffering, it has stress, it has that which is difficult to bear. And in or, the prescription for dealing with it is to face it. Stop running from it. Because we've been unable to actually feel and, and navigate and ride the waves of unpleasant and know that we, we can survive and that they, even like the pleasant, they arise and pass. Because we haven't developed any confidence, faith, we have just run from anything unpleasant and assumed that there's something wrong. And then finally, in our thoughts, in the world of our imagination, which is mostly about me the imagined me, it's not the, it's not the you that's sitting here. It's the imaginary version of you that thinks you have to be somewhere else to be happy. Uh, you, like, I have to finish this talk in order for you to be happy. Some of you, maybe. You're kind of waiting for it to be over. <laughs> well, the, the, 
It's true. <laughs> Admit it. <laughs> that there is, a, there is a tendency to associate our well-being with getting through things. With how things are going to help you sometime in the future. Not about actually living it. Not, not navigating. If you feel bored or you feel frustrated, if you feel tired, feel it. not going to be any better when it's over, except for a few moments. So the teachings are basically the cure for pain is in the pain. I was thinking of the teachings of Eckhart Tolle, who, who says that this tendency not to be able to feel our life just the way it is, and accommodate it, and be big enough hearted, big enough mind to be able to roll with the, with the punches. He says it's turned, I'm, I'm adding my own little ad lib to this, but he, it's turned the present moment into, uh, uh, it's just destroyed our relationship with the present moment, the only moment we have. The present, he, he, the way he puts it, the present has become a place we pass through on our way to somewhere else. What's with that? Or it's become the enemy, or it's become uh, an obstacle. And our practice invites us to stop assuming, just as Nisargadatta put it, that something will make us happier than I, we are. That, that search, even in, in the middle of a Dharma talk for the end, any search for happiness is misery. That's what gives us the misery, not my Dharma talk. <laughs> it's so easy to attribute it to our outer or inner circumstances. And that's just a trick that our mind plays that um, makes us lose contact with life and turn the present into some place we're just trying to get through. So whatever it is you're experiencing right now, Whether it's pleasant, see if, feel its pleasantness. Feel it in your body, feel it in your mind. If it's unpleasant, see if you can accommodate the unpleasant. See what happens in one moment in the span of your life where you're not looking ahead or you're not looking back. Because in that moment, there will be, likely be an absence of any view of reality, of any view of yourself. So notice what your experience is after your last thought or view has ceased and before the next one arises. Just feel, use as your doorway whatever you're feeling right now. Not thinking about it, but just feeling it. And you may discover there's lots of space there. A sense of freedom, a sense of enoughness, a sense of peace, a sense of home. Everything's been granted. Nothing's missing. As a Mahayana Sutra puts it, having no view of self, and to me, having no view of reality or view of self, 
Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. But we don't stay there. As Dujim Rinpoche says, a thought suddenly arises. And that thought, if it's noticed, it shows itself as just part of the vast expanse of the present moment. But if it goes unnoticed, it it congeals into um, a narrative. It spreads out into ordinary thinking. And this is what he calls the chain of delusion. As we then just get lost in the story. What's the story? If it's pleasant, if we're reacting to something pleasant in the present moment, our story is, how can I have more of it? Maybe even if the talk was pleasant for you tonight, maybe you already planned to come back next week. I'm just kidding. If it was unpleasant, I'll never go back there again. And pretty soon we're in our story about it. We're sizing it up. And we've, in a matter of moments, we've lost contact with the fact that there's only six experiences happening any time in our life. There's seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting, feeling, thinking, and the, and the noticing of it. That's all. Life's very simple if we can learn to inhabit the present moment. And it's so interesting what happens when we start to get a taste of that simplicity. Something in our whole organism begins to relax. Our mind relaxes. The fists open. And, as I mentioned before, space is there. Open and inviting and comfortable. Now, nothing changed in our life in those moments, except there was a cessation, an ending for at least a moment of the lifetime of the drama of I need to be other than I am where I, it's somewhere else, I need to get somewhere, I need to figure it out, I need to worry about, I need to remember, I need to remedy, whatever it is. Now, I can joke about that, but we've all fall into those patterns because we have we've gotten burdened. And we've gotten burdened not just because of the bad habit of, of not being able to feel the unpleasant. We've been traumatized. We've been, we've, we live in an unsafe world. You know, there's a lot of reasons. But nevertheless, the freedom, the peace that we all want is available to us if we give our heart back to ourselves. As Derek Walcott put it, the time will come, and we'll end with this tonight, the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself to the one who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the portraits, the angry notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. So let's sit quietly.
May all of us commit to the daily practice of staying here. Purifying, clarifying our speech, our livelihoods, our actions, letting being present be the hub around which we do everything, clarifying our minds by cultivating wise effort, wise concentration, wise mindfulness, and inclining all our actions moment by moment toward non-greed, non-hatred, non-ignorance. And remember deeply, experientially, that we don't exist independently apart from each other, live with a sense of interbeing, live in peace, live in harmony. May all beings everywhere live in peace, live in harmony. May all beings everywhere live with ease. So thank you again for putting up with me tonight. Uh, I am I'm so happy that uh, that we're sitting together, and I I'll look forward to the next time as well. Uh, just a reminder that we're here because and able to be here because other people have uh, supported us being here by offering room rental Donna. So we are already the beneficiaries of a lot of Donna. And uh, a few months ago, we instituted a new program called. An evening at Mission Dharma, if, if whoever would be so inclined to offer enough for our room rental for the night. And the people who offer are given a plaque and their name, and they get the joy of having offered. And uh, it's $150 a night. Anybody would like to participate in that program. But any offering to the support of the room rental is deeply appreciated, and any offering to support me being able to do this is also appreciated. None of it's... Uh, it's all optional, but uh, encouragement to, is to practice generosity. It's another thing that lightens the heart and brings joy. So thank you in advance, and I will uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Any other announcements? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.